this very body that we have that's sitting here right now with its aches and its pleasures is exactly what we need to be fully human, fully awake, fully alive. Casey, two questions. Okay. One, who said it? Two, where did I find it? Pema Chodron. Everyone knows one. that. Yes, <laughs> one for one. <laughs> well, I, I happen to know because I'm looking at the same thing. I'm looking at our guest's website. Yes. Today, in liveinpsychotherapy.com, which we'll put in the, in the notes. So this was an awesome interview. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about our special guest today? Well, I would love nothing more. Um, this was particularly a, a delightful show for me on, on many levels. But one is I got to do a podcast with two of my best friends. That was really fun. You're one you of Adam, them. <laughs> you and Adam go back way before we even knew each other. We do. We do. And not to embarrass him too much, but I met him in ninth grade and first day of freshman year at a new high school. And this ginormous uh, man child of a person walked in. He looked very much like Eric Montrose of the uh, North Carolina Tar Heels at the time. And I believe he actually was wearing that jersey. And I said, wow, I didn't know that they let seniors in today. It's just for freshmen. And he's actually a freshman. Very funny. Uh, but yes, we've, we've known each other since then and played a little basketball together, a little football together. Went our different ways in college and uh, found ourselves kind of in the very similar uh, endpoints, at least in careers and endpoints. It's not an endpoint. Middle point. Yes. Very delighted to spend this hour with Adam and with you. And I think that our listeners are in for quite a treat. Our guest, Adam Arnold, is a licensed psychotherapist. He's co-director of Enliven Psychotherapy, where he works with individuals and families through a trauma-focused lens, which, which uh, will come up today in our conversation. He's particularly passionate about working collaboratively to increase a feeling of safety in the body, which, of course, gives a nod to that quote that you started us off with today. I'm going to put Adam's full bio in the show notes because there's a lot in there, but I want to get us right to the interview. Here is Adam Arnold. Adam Arnold. Hello, sir. Hi, Casey. Hi, Tim. Hey, buddy. Thanks for joining us today. Big, big open-ended question. Who are you? My name is Adam. I live in Minnesota. Uh, I work in mental health I work mostly with kids and teenagers. Uh, I'm married to a woman named Beth, and we are, we've been foster parents now for almost two years. Wow. So at any given moment, we'll have a, a varying array of, of children and or teens in our house. Right now, we are, we are empty for, for a variety of reasons. That's who I am. At least that's my bio. Yeah. <laughs> On paper, yes. Well, I know one of the things that 
I'm always interested about is while you're in the mental health world now as a provider, if I'm remembering correctly, that wasn't necessarily what you set out to do sort of in college, immediately after college. Talk about sort of what that journey was like for you, kind of where you started and then how you find yourself in this world now. To my memory, I think I had about 11 different majors in college. Yes. I'm not sure if I officially, you know, went to the registrar's office and actually did the paperwork for all 11, but in my head, I was very serious about 11 different ones. So a little below average. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had no, I mean, I, I was interested in so many things and, uh, you know, everything from music to, to theater, to polit- political science, to philosophy and religion. Uh, for a long time, I wanted to go into some kind of, uh, some kind of politics, uh, whether that was running for office or, you know, working behind the scenes at a think tank or something. And then for a long time, I wanted to be uh, a Christian minister. And so that's where the religion uh, theology part came in. I ended up landing on uh, philosophy and world religions was my undergraduate major. Uh, and I really, wasn't sure what I was going to do after college. I had a number of interests, but I, I went into um, actually directing and teaching theater for, for kids and teenagers. Um, that wow. was my first job out of college and absolutely loved it. Um, it. And I ended up applying to go to graduate school for theater education. So this was a specialized wow. program to work you know, in a middle school and high school and just be a theater teacher. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was actually talking to one of my uh, one of my teenage actors about that. I was saying, "Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to move to Boston next year. I'm going to do this program." And he said, "Huh? So you're basically going to get a master's degree, two and a half years of your life to do pretty much exactly what you're doing now." And I was like, wow. "Yeah, yeah." When you say it like that, and so that actually kind of sparked me to to reconsider. Uh, and I started to kind of talk to some mentors and, uh, one mentor in particular said, Hey, you know, what I'm noticing, she actually supervised me, uh, when I was directing a play with, with, with her kids. And she said, what I'm noticing is that, Hey, you know, you love theater, you, 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 you like directing. Um, but what I'm noticing is that the relationships you're developing with the kids feel much more counselor like than they do director like, Mm. and the way that you approach directing a play feels much more like personal growth and therapeutic, uh, more of a therapeutic mentality than just art. And she said, maybe you want to read some books and look into doing therapy with kids and teens. Um, Wow. That that was it. I mean, and so um, that's when I started reading books about uh, doing therapy with teens and learning more about it and doing uh, working towards ever since. I'm curious, say mentor, supervisor, I can't remember now, actually. She's both. Yeah, she was both. This all-encompassing being had that conversation with you. Mm. Do you recall, how did that strike you in that moment? I I felt honored. I mean, just, um, I think something that I talk about with my colleagues, just about how seriously we, we take our jobs, developing these relationships with these kids. And so I felt honored that this person who I respected would see me as someone who could work with these really delicate issues with delicate human beings. I don't 
like to talk about, oh my gosh, this like changed my life. And oh my gosh, this is this moment was life changing. Mm-hmm. But that was truly one of them. And it wasn't like the sky opened and angels came <laughs> down. It was just a simple conversation. We were in flip flops in a community center and she just kind of set it off the cuff. And I was like, yeah, cool. So then um, I was off and running. I did do theater with, with teens for 11 years after that. So by no means did I you know, quit theater. Ah. Uh, I, I, I um, actually got more intense doing theater with, with kids and teens uh, while I was in graduate school and, and the first several years that I was practicing in mental health. So it was always separate, but it was all, uh, sometimes together too. Sometimes we were using theater to treat mental health concerns, uh, mm-hmm. but sometimes it was separate as well. I'm wondering about this idea of like listening and as a director, because I don't really know anything about directing theater. Mm. I've seen one production on TV. <laughs> now I'm obsessed. But as a director, what are you listening for? Yeah, I'm thinking about that. I think while, while I'm thinking about your, your question, which I will answer, I think what I, what I do want to say is that they often say the best actors are the ones who are listening mm. to what's happening with their other actors on stage or on film. And so, you know, being honest to the moment and responding to fresh things that are happening with the audience or with what their acting partners perhaps doing differently in that moment versus what was happening in the rehearsal. In terms of a director, I suppose there's two ways to look at it. I mean, when, when you're directing, you are auditioning people and you're listening for what they could do so that I think Mm. in one sense, there's a technical aspect to it is, you know, can this actor do this role Mm -hmm. uh, depending on their voice, depending on how they look, depending on the way they express themselves. I think, I hope this doesn't sound too hokey, but I I think it's kind of what everyone's looking for when they're in the, in the audience, either for a TV show or a movie or a play. It's that authenticity piece. I mean, does this person seem like they are integrated? Does it seem like they're comfortable in the, in the character's skin? Yeah. Your time in theater, if this is accurate, starting out more as a performer and then sort of transitioning into director, what was different about the two sides of, of that? Yeah, I think I was better as a director. I'm not mm. sure. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm a great performer. I, I, um, I'm comfortable singing. So you know, if you if you put me in an operetta and just stand me in the back, I'm I'm tall and just have me stand and sing. I can I can do that well. But in terms of you know developing a character and forming it, that wasn't what I w- would excel at. Um, I also experience quite a bit of anxiety when I act. So um, singing is is fine. I can do that fairly well. But I was experiencing some 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 panic on stage, which was pretty uncomfortable. <clears throat> directing just felt comfortable. Um, I think I've always felt comfortable directing, uh, whether that's been in, in a theater setting or other settings. Um, I really enjoyed really digging into a show and looking at concepts and looking at themes and working collaboratively with the kids to to bring stuff out. We probably wrote uh, as a company half of the plays that we did. So they were original pieces based on mental health issues, social justice issues, um, so a lot of these these plays were were homegrown and had um, fingerprints of uh, of the kids all over the plays, which again was was really intimate to have 
not only the kids write them, have kids actually play kids on stage, which is not often mm. the case, unfortunately, in plays. Oftentimes kids are putting on beards and which is fine too, but I think sometimes it's good for kids to play kids. Um, but they also wrote it and, and they sometimes um, oftentimes came up with the ideas as well. Hey, let, let's, let's write a play about um, racism in America. Let's write a play about child sex trafficking. Yeah. Wow. In, in what strikes me there is this idea of people talk about it, like finding my voice. I don't love the word find there because it implies that somehow you didn't have it and then you hmm. it was out and you found it. But right. they got such an opportunity to have someone hear their voice, but to like share their voice and work on it and refine yes. it and meld it with other people's voices. Yes. I like the way you said that, Tim, because I think how, how I saw it was that their voice was already there. We were just providing an, an opportunity to have them unleash it. Yeah. Uh, we had really good parents. I don't know how we, I mean, when I say good, I don't like that. Um, parents who were just really aligned with the mission uh, and we didn't have an overarching agency that was overseeing us. So that's my long way of saying is that we had, we had a lot of freedom of speech and we could have kids talk like kids without anyone coming in and saying, Hey, you can't swear. Or you can't have this content in there. So there was a lot of talking on the stage, like kids actually talk, which I think helped unleash that, that voice. I wonder if they had an opportunity in a very real way to experience learning to trust their voice hmm. too. And having a, an adult figure who's directing it, trust it, trust it as well. Yeah. Hmm. I like that. I'll take that affirmation. As you think about still kind of keeping that director hat on performing theater, creation, art. And I'm trying to ask this without getting too much into your current perspective, but if you can put yourself back in that time before you had all of your training in, in humans, <laughs> well, how would you kind of talk about the growth process? What do you think you did as a director, as a teacher to help those kids grow and develop? I think trying to teach and set limits and sometimes curb behavior, sometimes restructure ways of doing things in a way that hopefully did not come across as judgmental. Mm. And so as adults, whether it's a theater teacher or a math teacher or a, a mental health professional, uh, we are tasked with guiding and teaching and leading and sometimes correcting and sometimes even providing consequences. But if we can do it without judging the kid, I think that was at the, at the forefront of my mind is creating an emotionally safe space. Mm. Uh, not only because my goodness, uh, it's hard to create good art when you're feeling tense and, and scared. Um, but, but also uh, we know that can be emotionally damaging and can, can stick with kids for forever being, being shamed and, and judged. Well, and let's let's stay with that for a little bit. And, mm -hmm. and of course, Tim, feel free to jump in. But how do you do that? Create an emotionally safe environment. You know, I, I, it's been so long since I've been in that world myself. And I was struck to hear you talk there because it's really interesting, you know, in Tim and I's current work, you know, we talk a lot with leaders, 
more so in the business world about how to give effective feedback. And there's this instant, almost tension in when you, people even hear the F word, no, not that one, feedback hmm. um, in, in the world of work. And yet, you know, back when I was a teacher, <laughs> back when I was a choir director, all I did all day long was give feedback. Yeah. And it's, it just happened. And, and so talk more about how you create that emotionally safe space. I'm not sure if I succeeded at this. I, I would actually love to ask some of the kids who are now adults. I mean, a, a lot of these kids now are, are adults. They're married. They have children. It's, it's wild for me to experience. I love it, though. But I, I think what I worked really hard on was self-awareness about why I was doing it. Because I think we can all think back about teachers, parents, coaches, um, theater directors, choir directors, who it was very clear they were doing it for themselves. Yeah. And the kids were just pawns in their, their way for, I don't know, it could be a paycheck. It could be uh, ego, you, you name it. But kids get that sense pretty quickly that, that Mr. Smith is here to berate us and it's all about him. And so I, yeah. in terms of self-awareness, I really tried on a daily basis to make sure that in my brain and body, I was, I was really doing it for the kids. And I know that's something that we see on like every pamphlet with every childcare organization, <laughs> but I was, I, I was intent on really making that the, the North star. Um, and I think that when, when kids, when we're giving feedback to kids uh, and they can sense that, Oh my gosh, this is either in service of the piece we're doing um, or in service of my development as a person and or artist. I think that they receive that feedback much more much better than if they get the sense that this person's just berating them to massage their own ego. Yeah. It, it's, I like what you said there. It's really those two pieces, isn't it? When, when the feedback is centered on either the work, right? So, you know, we need to do this so that this can be the best product that it can be, or, for your own personal development, meaning the person who's receiving the feedback. And you can feel that. Mm. Yeah. I can actually recall two different times I was auditioning for choir. One of those experiences, I, I knew the person giving me the feedback just wanted to help me. Mm. And the other one, I knew I was I, I was a pawn or just a piece in this person's agenda. Yes. Interesting, Adam, opposite of you. I, if you were to put me on stage and have me sing in front of people that I would decompensate. <laughs> Absolutely. In the, but just sitting with my own, you know, fear about that and then being asked to perform that task, right? For me, it would be singing other people that might be acting it, it's almost it doesn't matter what the task is but it's like for them if that's something that they're not sure about they really you, you when you're in that kind of unsure place you really can really tell what place the person giving you feedback is coming from yeah yeah and to your point tim it's such a vulnerable thing mm. for opening up our voice or acting or expressing ourselves. And, and so to, to make sure that we're, we're tuning to that. 
when people are being vulnerable that we're not cutting them down in that moment. Um, maintaining awareness of that. I should also say too, that as a, as a director and as a theater company, we, we put a lot of emphasis on, on effort that there are just some things that many of us simply can't do. There are certain notes I can't hit. Mm -hmm. uh, we had, we had several kids in our company who were seasoned actors, but they had a variety of disabilities. So we had kids with autism, uh, kids with down, down syndrome, um, you know, one kid who was in a wheelchair. And so what we'd say is um, if you can't do something, he, you, you can't do it, but the things you can do, give it your all. And so that was how kids were, were evaluated. Not that we did, you know, structured evaluations, but as long as you were really giving your all, that was what we asked of you. What's coming up as I'm listening to you, Adam, I'm actually reminded of, I was watching, I think it was Peyton Manning's place. This was yeah. early days of quarantine when I was yeah. binging on that, but it might've been that, but it was an interview with Nick Saban and to kind of bring in one of the things that you and I share uh, an obsession with football, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but Nick, but Saban talked about trusting the process and he puts his trust in the people that they will give what they have through the process and that the outcome the outcome we can't control, but we can control how much effort we put into the process. Absolutely. Yes. And yes. it sounds really similar to what you're sharing too about kind of how you crafted and led the, the theater. Certainly. Yeah. And I, as, as you both know, I have a sports background, but I also have an arts background. And I think that the preparation is so similar in terms of you oftentimes play and perform the same way that you practice. And so the, the discipline involved and just how countercultural uh, some of this stuff is. I mean, theater, you rehearse for, for two months, you know, sometimes five, five, six days a week and then boom, three performances. I mean, that's so not what our culture celebrates now in terms of instant gratification and taking your time. I think, you know, as you're talking about this, you know, there's people listening who probably have little to zero experience with the arts and the performance world or athletics. Cause as you talked about, there's so much parallel that, mm. that I think a lot of people, if you're just have one foot in, in either and, and not both experiences like, like we do, you miss, there's not a lot of difference in terms of the process, right? <laughs> it's whether it's a, a, a team sport or a, a performing group, you, you practice, you rehearse, you practice, you rehearse, you practice, you rehearse, and then you maybe perform for a couple hours yes. once or twice, right? And from my perspective, and this then translates also into the world of work, right? The best coaches, the best conductors, the best directors, the best choreographers, the best leaders, they focus on the process, yeah. right? It that That's... That's where it happens. And, you know, I know so many performers, in some ways, even more so instrumentalists, who would be totally content to never perform. Hmm. It's the process. It's, it's getting incrementally better every day and enjoying the process of molding and creating. And for some people, they don't necessarily need to share that with anybody else. Yes, Yes, certainly the, the process is, is sometimes where the, 
the richness is. I also think that sometimes, you know, if it is a collaborative effort, the relationships you build during that process um, are so beautiful. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, I don't do theater anymore with, with kids and teens. I, I, I chose to, to stop for a variety of reasons. Um, the number one thing I, I miss number one thing is the, the relationships with, with the kids um, because of how you, you, you're working towards not only creating a, a good play, good art, which is, which is special, but we would always be doing a, a show about an issue. And so mm-hmm. there was always, you know, we were thinking about survivors of abuse. We were thinking about persons with addictions. And so there was, there was a, a mission there that was, I think, bigger than ourselves, which was also a special thing to, to come together on. Yeah. So you mentioned sort of this, if I just say transition <laughs> into mental health. And, and so I'll just ask the, the high-level psychologist question, what was that like for you? Really hard. Yeah. I think what, what, I've, what I've just started kind of settling on in the last couple of years, and it took me a long time, was really integrating the two. Mm. I, I, think, I think what happened in my mind, and it took me a long time to figure out that I was doing this, um, and again, this is, this, this is my perspective. I, I wonder if the kids who I was working with in, 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 um, in, in treatment would, would say this. Um, but in my mind, I kind of got in too much of a, cl- a, what I'd say, a, a clinical mode in terms of the medical model. Mm-hmm. And I forgot a lot of my creative parts. So I kind of felt like, you know, over here I had this theater and that's where you could be silly and wild and weird and, and, we're, we're using all sorts of color and, and, and art and yeah. uh, excitement. Uh, and then when I got into my office doing therapy, then I'm a guy in a, you know, a white coat. I, I didn't wear a white coat, but you know, now I'm almost, you know, Dr. Adam, who is clinical now. And now I'm diagnosing and I have a treatment right. plan and I have a diagnostic assessment. And so it kind of... Um, sterilized it in a way sterilized mm-hmm. the word i'm thinking of yeah mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and not not in a good way i mean there, there there's time for there, there's time for that there, there there's time for that kind of professional approach um it it's not my style and i i would also add that i don't think it's good therapy for for kids and teens to to be that way and so it took me a long time to have those two paths really integrate um I, I feel more integrated now with, with those things. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty wild in, in session. Um, I'm finding that a lot of what, <laughs> yeah. I, so you can ask my, my colleagues here. Sometimes things get loud in my office, which is great. Um, sometimes parents do question what the heck we're doing in there. I mean, aren't we supposed to be treating depression? Or aren't, aren't we supposed to be treating anxiety? Aren't we supposed to be talking about the bad thing the kid did yesterday? Um, but from my perspective, it absolutely is it is treatment. It just looks different. I keep thinking as I'm listening to you, the subtle yet I think really major distinction between treating and healing hmm. uh-huh. and treating feels like a fixing, right? And like, I have the solution and I'm going to give it to you. Yes. I have the medicine. I'm going to give it to you. The problem is in you that needs fixing. Whereas this idea of healing feels almost like the the power to heal is in you and I'm going to be with it and watch it. But it that's just kind of the image I'm having in my head. 
It's a beautiful image, and I think you're articulating it better than I did. And I think that that is really, from my perspective, the big difference between what mental health workers do and what what physical medicine workers are do. Because there, as we all know, there are pills that can really fix things. There are surgeries mm-hmm. that can fix things, and that's that's the scientific fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need a treatment for a broken bone. Yes. In in and we don't know how to put our own cast on. Yes. So there is there's like you said there's a place for that. Yes. I'm not sure from where I sit today, mental health work with kids and teens, if there is a place for that kind of approach. For, for I'm going to fix you. Right. Right. And this can be really difficult for parents who are struggling with some pretty big behaviors from their kids. I'm curious not to throw us off of, this particular trajectory, I think we can come back to this, I think, but I'm curious just to go back a little bit to, I think both Tim and I hear so often from so many people who have these career changes and often are maybe even a little surprised at how it kind of smacks you in the face a little bit in terms of it's a big change. And I think one of the pieces that we often don't realize until we're in the middle of it is how much it impacts our sense of identity and sort of who we are and sort of our, our standing on the ground um, experience. And so talk a little bit about that for you. What did you notice? It was vivid. Um, a lot of tension in my body, uh, literal sweating. Wow. Uh, it was, it was, it was, it was big. Um, just so not comfortable in it. Uh, it just felt so misaligned with what I wanted to be doing. Uh, not in terms of, you know, I didn't want this job or I didn't want to be working with this person. Yeah. Um, it was more just, I, I wanted to get up and be creative. And instead I felt this need to sit with my legs crossed and use a bunch of clinical jargon. How do you think it happened that you found yourself in that sort of frame where, well, this is how I have to be now and sort of lop off this whole part of who I am. I appreciate you asking. And I'm, I, I don't want to like scapegoat. <laughs> no, it's okay. my, 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 my first answer is just how, how our field is. Um, our, our field, generally speaking, is fairly entrenched in the medical model. Right. Uh, which has its place. We, we need structure uh, so, some uh, in that way, but also, yeah, when you go and you you talk with insurance companies, they don't want to hear that you had a dance party for 45 minutes. They want, <laughs> to, they want to hear that you are doing CBT and you are, you know, correcting mistaken beliefs in the kid. And um, Stop healing people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that, I think that's, that, that's my first answer. Um, I think, too, there was some insecurity, you know, when you're first getting started in, mm-hmm. in a career. I had definite what what they call imposter syndrome and so i think there was a part of me that felt like hey if i can learn the jargon and if i can appear clinical then i'll be taken seriously and then i'll feel more legitimate um so i think that was a part of it as well um i'm not sure if i I probably feel a little more established now but to to tim's points that 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 he's sharing i think that i'm more interested in doing what's best for the kid than feeling legitimate. Legitimate. Yeah. I, you yeah. know, go ahead, please. Well, I just, 
the point of this is to to learn your story, but I, I can't help but just talk about how many parallels we have in our stories. You know, as a former music teacher, in which, and I think we've we've talked about this a little bit before. You know, when I was student teaching, parents and peers telling me, you know, oh, you're so lucky that you've realized what you're supposed to do with the rest of your life. You know, and I was 21 years old and. <laughs> couple years into it starting to wonder well is this and you know it took me seven years after leaving um, teaching and music to be able to comfortably respond to people when they would ask well what do you do Hmm. because I felt there's no rational not that I like that word but reason to it it just I think it's part of one, how we're wired, and two, societally, I think we like to have clarity around things. I thought I had to divorce this part of me, you know, basically the artist part of me, if you will. And I didn't realize how much I didn't want to. Like, I wasn't honest with myself. And so I felt, you know, I had to give this dissertation response because I wanted people to know that I, well, I used to be this. And now I'm studying to be this. And, and, you know, it wasn't until a couple of years ago that a colleague asked me in a group of us, you know, what's a, what's a part of yourself that you have disintegrated from hmm. that if you brought back in would make you a better clinician. And it was in that moment that I realized, oh, I don't have to lop off that part of who I am. Yes. And in fact, when I brought back my sense of, of being a conductor, I absolutely became a better psychologist. Love it. Mm. Because not only are these parts of our histories and, and, and part of what makes us us, but also it's a great way to connect with other people. If, if we have a rich life with lots of different interests, we can connect. I remember I had a friend in college. He wanted to be a doctor and I forget the medical school. It was some medical school in Iowa actually. And I, they were, they were going out and recruiting non-biology majors. They, they wanted, they wanted to, to, to uh, cultivate MDs who could connect with human beings on, on a, on a deeper level. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. You've said this idea a few times now, and you've used two different words for it, connecting and integrating. And as I'm listening to both of you, and I I know both of you pretty well, (laughs) um, the process of integrating that kind of first adult self into this adult self is, it it isn't like a moment. It's it's a process. Mm. Yeah, I think that was you know, just kind of hearing myself tell my story today. There was that kind of aha moment with my mentor when I was 22 years old, when she said, hey, have you considered being a child and adolescent therapist? And that was kind of a moment. Yeah, the the process of integrating these two different parts, professional parts of me, um, has taken a very long time. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I've, I've arrived yet, but I, I'm much more comfortable. Oh, wonderful. Same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful to not have arrived. How boring. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, hearing you talk about your muse when you were 23 and what they, they saw something in you. That struck me too. And, and again, yeah. 
I, I don't want to infuse myself into this, but I think we can learn from each other in these experiences because I too had a very similar experience where I was doing my thing, teaching a high school choir and, you know, having grumblings like oh, maybe I need to explore some other opportunities. And my colleague, the orchestra director who office was next to me she said to me you know there's this constant stream of kids coming in and and out of your office and they really (laughs) connect with you have you ever thought about being a a counselor and I said no but I think I will (laughs) and it it (laughs) literally was no turning back and you know took a deeper dive into psychology but but it was that moment that to Tim's point and I wonder what we can all learn from it that someone saw something in me I didn't necessarily know it uh or wasn't allowing myself to know it i don't know what it was but it was that someone saw that and and i i heard it yeah and it sounds like you had that similar experience yeah do you miss conducting choir absolutely yeah absolutely um sometimes you know when i'm talking with with kids about you know trying to break the ice and develop relationships I will ask the question, you know, have you thought about your, your career, um, you know, what you might like to do for, for your job? And, you know, kids ask me, what do I want to do? And I say, well, I'm doing what I want to do. Sometimes <laughs> kids don't realize that, it, that it's my job, which I kind of like. Um, yeah. but, um, but I say, if I, if I wasn't doing this, I would, I would love to be a, a, a choir conductor. Um, I think again, Casey, and I, I've never done it, so I, I don't know the feeling of it, but you are, you are conducting for sure. And you're thinking about time signatures and, and you're thinking about sound levels, but you're also, you, you can see their eyes as, as you're conducting, which I just sound, sounds close to me. It's all in the eyes. Yeah. It's actually really interesting. You know, when, when we're training and learning, you know, it's all about your gesture and your hands. But what we know actually is that singers aren't literally watching your hands. Yeah. But you're all making eye contact. Yes. Yeah. Um, years ago I did, I did a play um, and I won't, I won't say the college Casey, um, <laughs> but they not were the right they one. Were, that's not the right one. <laughs> I, I was actually in a musical yes. with, with a man who was in a good Midwestern choir and uh, they, I, I don't even know what the song was, but it was an acapella song that, they were not connecting with like the director was kind of saying like, Hey, we're just not connecting with the spirit of the piece. And I don't know what it is. And maybe it, maybe it'll just take some time, but it's not, it's not coming. And finally he's, he pointed at this, um, this dancer who was in the choir and he said, Hey, um, would, I know you're a beautiful dancer. Would you be willing to come down here? We're going to sing it again. Can you just dance while we sing it and just kind of go, and uh, the story's told that when that happened during this rehearsal, this is a rehearsal, um, when that, that, that male dancer improved it, uh, it just brought the song uh, alive for some reason. That speaks to, to me to the connectedness piece. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, we're talking a lot about sort of the artistic process today. And, but I think it's important to keep pointing out that the reason that so many people are drawn to art in some way, whether it's creating it or consuming it is because how much it helps us understand things, how much we connect to it 
on various levels. And something I've been thinking about a lot lately as, as Tim and I are still working on our book, um, we had to rewrite it thanks to COVID, but um, it's getting better. Is this, this sense of knowing, you know, we talk about our dimensions of knowing and societally and even um, neurologically, we put a lot of weight on intellectual knowing, right? Like that's the, that's the kind of knowing that gets to be credible, right? In the world, right? Yeah. What's, what's your evidence? Well, you know, and yet I just think if we're all actually more honest with ourselves and with each other, that experience that you just talked about, that wasn't an intellectual exercise yeah. in, in knowing that we're connecting with the, the spirit of the piece and the composer's intent and all these pieces. You just had to feel it. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that was, in that sense, the absolutely most credible form of knowing. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, we're working on one of our, our shows a number of years ago with, with teenagers, and there was this very long monologue that one of our actors was asked to perform within the play. And she would, you know, write it all out on her notebook and she would write different notes along the words, like, you know, do a pause here, um, do an inflection here, um, shorten this word here, move your right arm. I mean, it was very well thought out and she was working so hard on it. And of course, as a director, you're like, oh my gosh, again, effort, like, this is so cool. Like, do your thing, keep going, keep working hard. But it was, it was stiff. It was mm. not authentic. Um, I happened to have an assistant director who was also a teenager. She was asked to have a leadership role on, on that play. And she very gently said to this actor one day, uh, just go inside. And that was the best piece of direction she could have gotten. That's all she needed to do was stop trying to do all these different, trying to be, even though you're playing a different character, you are being someone other than yourself. Right. Go inside and use your own internal resources. Mm. You know what? comes up for me there is that was a safe invitation to explore their inner experience. Right. It could have been said so insensitively, you know, like, Oh, just relax or just let go. Or I think too tied to this, we haven't talked about the word trauma yet. And, but, but I think that this is my theory and I want to get your opinion on it. That trauma is the erasure of being allowed to have an experience. Huh. And whether that's physical, it, it doesn't, I mean, we think of trauma so narrowly, physical trauma, right? Which is the erasure of your physical right to be in the way you are. But to be not allowed to access your internal truths in any way, that disallowance I really think is traumatic to the person. Yes. This is why I'm so passionate about giving kids and, and teenagers a, a free space to play and to feel what they're feeling and to let their bodies and their voices go where their bodies and voices want to go without limitations nice. and con- conditions. I think that's trauma treatment. There needs to be structure. There needs to be safety. There needs to be mm-hmm. some containment. They can't just throw glass objects around my office or, or go on my computer and, and do what they want. Um, but I think, yeah, what, what a, what an experience. Yeah. To have your, your sensations shut down 
in that traumatic experience than to be able to spread out. It's kind of the block that keeps me from being able, allowed to integrate. Right, right. To connect. I think too, when we're talking about trauma, we and we're having this discussion as a, as a field right now about, you know, I get hit by a red truck. I have post-traumatic stress disorder as well as trauma to my body. So I have trauma to my nervous system, you know, trauma to my skeletal system. Um, and it's, it's a singular event. And now whenever I see a red truck, I have a trauma response. I mean, th- there's that kind of trauma, but then there's just you know, more, more complex trauma where it's linked to relationship. It's, it's, it's linked to relationships. It's linked to crime in my neighborhood. I'm not sure if I want to call this trauma, but I have so many kids who come into my office for a variety of reasons. They have spent their entire lives with the adults in their lives, desperately trying to fix them. And so every, almost every interaction with an adult, there's an agenda to make them be different. Yes. I believe that can be traumatizing on some level, you know, whether that's a full-blown PTSD thing, I'm not sure there's a diagnosis for it. Maybe that, maybe it's just crystallizes in, in, in shame. Maybe right. That's one of the core issues, mm-hmm. um, but how heartbreaking that is. You said the word shame. And I wonder if shame is the trauma force to our soul. I think that's well put because uh, you, you talk to any, trauma therapists, um, when you're working through the trauma, I shouldn't say any trauma therapist, most trauma therapists with most trauma narratives or trauma targets, there's a sense of shame in there. Yeah. Even though those of us looking on the outside would say, you, know, you were the victim, like you were completely right. victimized. You didn't have any agency at all. Right. But there's this sense of, you know, I, I'm bad because I didn't stop it. I didn't do enough to prevent it. I shouldn't have put myself in that position. I'm just bad and defective. And so I just, um, people target me because I'm bad and defective. Um, there's just, yeah, this sense of shame that so many trauma survivors carry with them, which is so, again, heartbreaking. Well, and that's where I think, you know, to Tim's point, we traditionally in the world have such a narrow band around what gets to be called trauma. And if it doesn't fit in that very narrow band, then I think the implication usually is, well, buck up. And, and of course, you know, we mostly apply these concepts to the world of work. And one of the things that's really coming up for me, and it's, Here's a shame statement. I, I have a little shame that I hadn't really necessarily even thought about this. I don't think at least intentionally before. Certainly there are, I don't even know. Do you know, Adam or Tim, are there any sort of even um, estimates on the percentage of people who are walking around with some, I mean, not necessarily all big T's, but level of, 100. Yeah. I mean, I, that's what I, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> that's really my big, estimate. you know, and so whether you want to call it trauma or not, right. There's certainly levels in, of shame in most of mm-hmm. us that have calcified from, 
from multiple experiences of not being allowed to be seen and heard and, and valued for who we are with the conditions of worth placed on us. Anyway, my point is there's so much that the artistic world can teach leaders about how to create environments that, that do create really high performing teams. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Th- this is a, and, and certainly athletics, again, it's one and the same. I mean, there is not, there's not really a lot of space between those two worlds, even though we place it there for weird societal reasons. Talk about people who, and of course it's not a hundred percent of coaches and, and directors and conductors, but, but a good many of them know how to create environments where mm. people can be really safe to be vulnerable yes. and produce amazing things and that, what the business uh, world could learn from that. Yes. I, I think, I don't know if you were thinking about this, but where, where my mind goes is, and gosh, I don't know how to really phrase it, but there's this kind of um, thing that people in theater know about and I think you kind of have to experience it or witness it to really understand it perhaps, but um, how you can really hate your, your, your castmates sometimes, but put on a great product. Yeah. Um, it's, it's there, there's so many stories about it. You know, these, these, these two Broadway stars with, you know, huge resumes just you know, hated each other backstage. But when they got on stage, they had this great love story and, um, they were able to leave the drama for the stage and not bring it backstage. Right. Um, absolutely. I, I, I'd, I'd love to see more of that in, in different fields. And of course, there, there are stories too about creative environments where people were, were not getting along. I'm not suggesting that there's something magical about theater. And right. Nothing's perfect. Nothing's perfect. But yeah. I have I, a- I, I, one of the most profound performances I've ever seen, I, I sat in the theater for minutes afterwards crying. I, I couldn't get out of my seat. It was a love story that felt so real. And um, the next day I went to my voice teacher and I said, Hey, I saw this great play or musical last night and blah, blah, blah. He said, yeah. Do you know the story about the two leads? I said, no. He said, well, they were engaged and they just had a really, really, really messy breakup right before the play started. Wow. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, of course you think about, did that make the play better? But they were able to be professional. They were able to do a job um with with all that baggage i was going to mention too casey about your question about trauma i think one of the the things that we've been saying more and more uh, from the research learning more and more is that trauma is really in the nervous system of the beholder and so what's traumatic for me you know might not be traumatic for 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 someone else absolutely And, and we see this where people will come in to my office and say you know this this horrible thing happened and you know, the kind of thing you would see on, you know, criminal minds or something that is so unbelievable. And then I go, well, you must have trauma. Right. So terrible. And I start to, you know, treat trauma and start to kind of poke and try to do, but they don't have trauma symptoms right. for whatever reason. Um, but then I'll get a kid um, whose parents just divorced and the parents are lovely people. There's been no child abuse. There's been no tornadoes in the neighborhood. There's been no school shootings. It's just been a kind of a lovely life. Mm-hmm. And now my parents are getting divorced and there's legitimate trauma symptoms there. Right. That's an excellent point. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because there is sort of the, 
the, the individual differences in terms of, you know, what do we do with it? And mm. yeah, that's going to look different for everybody. Go I ahead. think just this idea about it's in the nervous system of the beholder and their disruption of their sense of security, they're going to interpret that their own through the, you either feel unsafe or you don't. And I think just the re-traumatizing thing that can happen is erasing their experience yet again of what they have or not. Right. Right. Versus, you know, and I think you even, I don't know if you meant to use this, but you said I slip into treating trauma, (laughs) right. And healing is, is listening and letting their reality, their truth be, and that's kind of a, in whatever it is, it gets to be there. Yeah. The question I had back about these actors that can like just have the most dysfunctional relationship off stage and then be so amazingly connected on stage. I didn't really, the word that kept coming up for me was the word trust. Hmm. And like, how does that, where does it show up? Because especially in an acting situation, you're really trusting, unless it's a one-person show, which do exist, uh, you're really trusting your fellow workers to to respond, to know their lines, to make their entrances. I think the same is true, Casey, with 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 choirs. Um, if we all don't come in at, at the same time, make our entrances, we have to really be there for each other. Um, but I think, Tim, yeah, to your point, Perhaps that's easy to do when you truly trust your coworker, but what happens when you don't? How do you work through that? I'm not sure I can speak expertly on that. I think perhaps that speaks to what we were referring to earlier in terms of um, the repetition, the the process, that if you get it into your cells and get it into the part of your brain that will just kind of do it on instinct, that might be why we spend two months doing the same thing over and over and over. Mm Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, the, the, I love that you brought up that trust piece, Tim, because I think whether it's, you know, a group of, of coworkers working on a project at the office or a group of performers, it's just not going to be as good of a product if, if the trust isn't there. And I, I love that example of the, the performers with maybe a, a rife relationship in the background because you know that's life and when you can at least for a moment focus on the project that that is bigger than you as an individual i think that in itself can kind of be that coalescing thing and i think good leaders know how to leverage that yeah Um, what what, why are we doing this right right adam We're going to end with three questions. Question the first, what's your truth? Being fully present for the people around me. Question two, what does courage mean to you? Doing hard things. And finally, what's your hope? That the human species can learn more and more how to fully use their whole brains. Wow. I love your hope. Yes, yes. 
that kind of encapsulates a lot of what we spoke about today. Mm. Really. Can I oh share gosh. that one? <laughs> it's, on, it's on your podcast. Oh. Oh, did we say that sometime? <laughs> you really did. Oh, no, no, no. You weren't lying. You did I, listen I, I, I to all of them. You can share it because now you kind of own it. Oh, I see. I see. Oh, good. Good. Yes, Got you it. did sign away your likeness to us. <laughs> no, we don't believe in owning people. <laughs> Never You're have. not the NCAA. No, that's right. Oh, we should do another episode on that. Yes. Um, thank you so much for, for taking the time to visit. We covered a lot of area and I wish we could keep going. Yes, this was Rich. Thanks for your questions and showing curiosity into who I am. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, and thanks for sharing yourself and your spirit with our listeners. Adam Arnold. Mm. How, how fortunate I feel that, that I was able to meet him through you. And mm. uh, wow, I really enjoyed that conversation. I feel like yeah. we covered a lot of ground <laughs> in, in a pretty I'm exhausted. <laughs> short amount of time. I mean, you know, if I didn't have a time neuroses, I would allow us to keep going. But mm. um. This one was really personal for me. We literally just finished recording. So sometimes we do the the intro and the debrief a couple days after to kind of let it sit in, but we literally just finished. And I'm kind of sitting here um, with all kinds of mm. wonderful stuff coming up. Um, I kind of talked about some of sort of my transition process from music teacher to psychologist and sort of that long journey, which wasn't necessarily complete and still isn't, of course, because whatever is. But this conversation, both in hearing about Adam's process of transitioning into a different sort of role in a sense, but also really hearing him talk um, about how much his art plays a pretty profound, he didn't even actually talk about it intentionally, but it just is obviously there. I think that, and again, I'm kind of processing this on the spot here, so I don't really know what's going to come up, but. Oh, I love it. I It really sort of brought up for me. I think I even maybe reflected on it in the conversation, I can't even remember in this moment, to be honest, but how I hadn't even fully integrated some of these things yet for mm. myself and mm-hmm. how much can be brought. I think I've said it out loud. I think I've known it intellectually. Right. Right. And it it's feels like it's more, it, the the integration feels more fully real now than it ever has. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually really excited for, oh. I know I've talked a little bit about, you know, I have a milestone birthday, yeah. um, 25 20. coming up here. <laughs> <laughs> I was giving you 20. Yeah. Could you imagine? Boring, no, though. thank you. No way. No, no. Um, but I've been trying to, think about, you know, I want to be intentional with how I kick off my 40th year and what that can look like. And I feel in a different way, like I have more power to decide than I've felt. And 
I've been circulating in my head a little bit around, well, how do I maybe more intentionally connect with that musician part of myself? Mm -hmm. And um, this conversation was very inspiring for me to, to do that. And I think what struck me, and again, this is kind of, I think I mentioned this, I almost feel a little shame for this. I'll take I, your shame. I, <laughs> no need. I don't think until this conversation, I fully connected with my body, how much value sort of the artistic process can bring to the world of work. Oh, well, Again, I, I think, think I, I understood it intellectually, but like it really hit me today in a new mm -hmm. way. And I think to that, I share that with you. Um, the the part of our conversation with Adam here around kind of trust, but I'm a I'm able to enter this space and give trust and trust the process and trust that my collaborators in this will also trust the process. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I love how he put it because it's actually all of that practice time, the practicing, you're actually sewing into your physical, your emotional, even your spiritual parts of self that the work we're doing is, is together and so we, we can reconnect to that togetherness. And I can trust that, that we might have this whole storm going on around us outside of this place, but I can know that we all will reconnect together to this process and, and believing that and trusting that. And that's, that really matters. And I think to your piece about how the world of art can really inform working together and whatever that looks like in leadership is yeah. creating that space for the, for the process to happen. Right. Right. We had a teacher who we both had, you know, they talked about corrective emotional experiences, mm -hmm. like having those corrective, you know, the, the chance to collaborate free of, of criticism, free of harm, free of, you know, erasure, free of the threat of all that stuff, the chance to show up free of those threats is a real corrective experience that most people haven't had a lot of opportunity to, to, to participate with that freedom. And when you get to, at first it's kind of like, what? <laughs> But after, but as you get it into the body, you realize, okay, this is a this is a place I can be here and take some risks. Well, and I think what's what struck me in that in thinking about that is, you know, a good chunk of people have had experiences, at least in high school, maybe not after that, but but sort of in either some sort of artistic performance experience or an athletic experience, which again, just to keep driving that home, the process is the same in which not a hundred percent, but a lot of coaches and directors in those spaces do a pretty good job of, of mm -hmm. creating those environments. It's not perfect. Yep. Yep. 
don't hear me say that but but uh, but you know it's my point in it yeah it is my point in it is that a lot of people actually have had that experience then yeah and what really struck me is how the world of work has become so divorced from that mm-hmm. and so far behind so far gone from those experiences that almost not, not everyone but I bet a really good chunk of people right. um, either I've had both or one or the other and think about that time as wow this was someone who believed in me and mm-hmm. and gave me feedback because they wanted me to be helpful and it didn't sting and I didn't feel like they were attacking me and I wonder if some ways you know that gets into our unconscious truth and mm-hmm. we're looking for that again yeah yeah yep the art community has figured out that to perform truly at the top of your game that the performers must be safe because it is it's so much vulnerability right and and you know i think whenever you you experience a, a truly moving performance that vulnerability has to be present on stage mm-hmm. whatever the art form mm-hmm. and right you can tell when it's not right because it well, falls pretty flat it's it, it it's not we use the word in uh, authentic mm-hmm. and i think that's a fine word but it's that one is misunderstood too Auth- authenticity is wholeness right right and and the vulnerability is allowing somebody to see all right, right. the whole Part with no hidden agenda behind it. I think why we're not, we're just not used to being that way. Yeah. We can get into all the reasons why in the book. <laughs> but there you go. No. There you go. <laughs> hey, some cool stuff um, as we kind of wrap up, unless I kind of jumped on you there. Anything else you wanted to kind of summarize or process from the conversation? One little tidbit that I had been kind of sitting with. Um, when we prepped last week and then to this week. And one of the things I was conscious about doing was I had some idea from our conversation of some things that I was hoping that we'd talk about. But I also was keenly aware that if I push hard to to do it in the way I am seeing it, it isn't going to work. So entering into the actual recording of it, part of what I was continually needing to bring back into my consciousness was, was let it unfold, let go, let go, let go. And how just personally, how, when I have been in times when I haven't brought that level of consciousness to it, how my habit will come back in it and I'll start controlling something uh, just because that's what I'm used to. Mm. and finding myself 30 minutes in then becoming aware oh i've been jamming this agenda down everyone's throats for the last half hour right but 
how important it is to like the trust piece is really let go of control. If you let go of control, surprises happen. <laughs> They're really good ones. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's, it's interesting because, you know, we, our first few seasons are the two of us talking and, and we plan it out. Um, we don't write a script, but we have a pretty solid outline that we try to stick to. And this is different. Yeah, for sure. And in some ways, um, the way I kind of think about it, you know, of course we kind of have a super high level hope sort of areas that right. this person can probably add some insight into, but it's also like, in a sense, calling back to our clinical training a little bit in that, where's this going to go? The The fun part I think is it is just a conversation and right. who knows what's going to come up for any of us. And yeah, it's kind of exciting. Well, and there's no real threat to letting go. Right. Like, there's no threat that happens with that. Right. It's right. exciting. It is exciting. Thanks for doing it with me. Mm, thank you for doing this with me. Um, 2021's coming up. Yes. Which, my goodness, that's exciting for many reasons. I have no idea what's going to happen. Uh, but one of the things we do know is going to happen are uh, our certification seminars. Registration is open. So if you have been a longtime listener or a short-time listener, or if you're not a listener... Um, if you've made it this far, you might be interested. <laughs> yeah. So this this stuff that that we talk about, um, you know, we put into a certification seminar, um, a deeper way. So if you're interested in kind of either taking your own work to a deeper level or helping others to a deeper level, um, you know, think about getting certified with us and joining our growing community of certified facilitators around the country. It's so enriching to to be building this community um, that we connect with several times a month and everyone talks about the work that they're doing and continued in their own growth and development. Um, so check it out a deeperway.com. We have a couple times every month we have preview events. If you just want to come and learn a little bit more about what does this mean to get certified? Um, you can sign up for one of the previews uh, at a deeperway.com and at least come and get to ask us some questions if nothing else. Engage with us on the social medias because that's always enjoyable. And don't forget to write a couple of reviews on the platforms that you might be listening to us on. That's always helpful to help other people find us. And in the meantime, talk to you. Zoom safe. <laughs> <laughs>